Father, we thank you for this morning. Thanks for Rune. Now, Lord, I just pray that you would you would move through me, speak through me, and uh, God may just make me an empty vessel. Uh, that your message from your word be crystal clear. Please, in Jesus' name, Amen. So uh, we are in chapter nine of First Samuel, walking through this book, and we're going verse by verse. <clears throat> um, next week we may not. I'm not sure we're going to finish here. I think I kind of know where I'm going to finish, but uh, there's a few more verses in chapter 10 that we're going to deal with maybe next week. Saul is a is the character in focus today. Give you a little recap in case you've been away and not been here. Let me just give you a, a recap as far as who we've been looking at. The first character in this series uh, was a man who had two sons. His name was Eli. He had two sons. He was a high priest. His sons were priests. They were wicked men, very corrupt. Um, God cast judgment on them, gave them chances to get fixed. They didn't. And so these men were told that your day is over. That even God even said the two sons are going to die on the same day. And the father, because he failed to address the sons, was going to die in, a, in an unfortunate death. And he did. And there's going to be a new man, a new person stepping in. This new person is Samuel. So the second character that's coming to this play is called Samuel. He is what you'd call a prophet. He is also what you would call at this time a seer. A seer, somebody who sees. And this would be a somebody who would, who would see very clearly what God would have do. And so they would be called a seer. It was a person. He was probably the most famous re- religious person of the day especially in Israel. And so there comes along a third person in Saul. Saul is being given over to be the king of Israel. So we talked about this last week. We talked about the humility of God. You think about a lot of the facets of, when you look at a diamond, you see all the 72 facets that it has on a diamond and a cut. And, and somebody who knows that world would tell you this, this helps give clarity to this and this makes up for the clarity here. And so it's hard to fall in love with just one particular piece. When you look at the multiple facets of God that he is powerful. He is everlasting. He's ever loving. You go to look at all these things. You can't help but think humility. When you think of a God so powerful, God in his humble and reserved nature to not just smite like you and I would if we were God. He is, he is one who, when he heard the people cry for a king, they said, God, we want a king. We want a king, um, and we, we drew this parallel. Imagine being a dad and your son looking and you say, I would like another dad in my life. The pain that would cause a dad to hear those words. But yet God hears the people say, we want a king. Now keep in mind, he's the king of kings. He is the ultimate. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, and they want another king. My chosen people, God says. And so what does God say? My people have called on my name and I've heard their cry and I'm going to give them a king. And he does. He gives them a man named Saul. Saul is living as a prosperous farmer. He's in probably a very large family, very well-to-do family, farming in this particular region. This is the illustration I give you of your neighbor who doesn't have a clue about spiritual matters, who is a good person. You know, just a good person. The person is uh, has a lot of ethics in the world of business and that kind of thing. So here is Saul out looking for his donkeys one day. 
with his servant. They're looking for his donkeys. You know he has money because I mean, these are the F-150s of the day, the donkeys. I mean, this is like, it's just not a donkey. Uh, it's just, it, these are their prized animals. They're looking for them and they're trying to find them. And, and uh, eventually Saul looks over and says, I don't know what we're going to do. My dad's going to start getting more worried about us than he is the donkey. And are the donkeys. So we got to do something. And the, he said, well, why don't we go and find a man of God? The servant says, let's go in here and find a man of God. And, and we can go to him and ask him something. And he can pray. And he, who knows he can see anything. And, and Saul, being a, obviously a man of integrity, says, well, you know, these guys don't exist off anything. They don't have a salary. They don't have a paycheck. You're supposed to take something. I didn't bring any money. I didn't think we were going to be out this long. The, the servant says, yeah, I've, got a, I've got a quarter of a piece of a shekel of silver. That's something. We could take that to him. And so they go up to this house. And, well, first of all, we know through last week, Saul is the tallest, best-looking guy. I mean, well-built. And it's no surprise these ladies are out getting water, right, on the, on the road. The young women see him coming. And, they, and as he's approaching, the, the women uh, are talking to him. He's inquiring to the ladies, do you know where I could find this seer? They said, if you hurry, you can catch him. He's in this town. And they ran up to him. Saul goes to the door with his servant, knocks on the door. Out walks Samuel. He says, I'm looking for the seer. Keep in mind, Saul had no clue what Samuel, who's, that it was Samuel he was talking to. He didn't know what he looked like. That is not unusual. Again, not a visual recognition society like we have now, where you can you see what people look like online, and that's who they are. But he had no interaction in the, in the religious realm. And so it's nothing unusual. He didn't know who he was. Samuel says, I'm him. I'm the guy. Keep in mind, Samuel knew Saul would be coming. He was promised through scripture and promised through, 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 I mean, promised through an interaction with the Lord that, Samuel, or that Saul would be coming. So there's Saul engaging with him. And Samuel begins to tell Saul, you're about to have a brand new life. You are about to be the one. And, and he goes on and explains his new role. And then begins to show him, this is where you're going to be going in this line of Israel. And, you're going to, and this man is all of a sudden, get, Saul is getting this picture. Now keep in mind, he's looking for donkeys. The donkeys are still lost. Donkeys are out there wandering around. You, you're looking for other assets. He's not on a journey to be a king. He invites him in. Saul invites him in for a banquet. I want you to have a banquet. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about these things. And then pick up with me in chapter 9, verse 22. And we'll just stop occasionally explaining some things. Samuel then took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave to you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg, what was said on it, and set it before Saul and Samuel, and said, "See what was kept before you. Uh, what, we, what is kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests." So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was prepared for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, "Up." that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Paul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here for a while yourself that I may make known to you the word of God. Now, 
let's just stop and explain a few things that are happening here. Did you notice there was a portion of meat set aside? That portion of meat was was set aside because Samuel knew Saul was going to be coming in. It was a portion of meat specifically reserved generally generally for priests. It would have been given over to priests. It would have been given over to a sacrifice. That portion of meat would not have typically been eaten at a dinner or a banquet with other people. This meat was set aside. It was a style of meat. In our mind, we can't imagine this. Even today, we had a discussion with a, with someone from Cuba on my back porch every day. He explained that in Cuba, and I've seen this when I was in Cuba, 98% of the Cuban population right now has never tasted beef, as ever eaten anything of a cow. They're not allowed. It's strictly reserved for members of the Communist Party. As a matter of fact, and it's no joke, no exa- I'm not exaggerating this, it is a longer prison sentence if you were ever caught slaughtering a cow than it is murdering a human being. And so, it, over in this, this, this place, they only can ask you, what's beef taste like? Well, I've heard this. They, they can, some can smell it when it's cooking at, the, at officials' pal- uh, you know, places and houses, but in this particular reign, this particular day, this was a piece uh, and a portion of the animal that was reserved for somebody better than somebody. Reserved for someone holier than somebody. And so for this piece of, of meat to be given over in front of 30 invited guests, I don't know who these guests are. I don't, I don't know who they are. And, um, it, but yet they are called together in this meeting. Saul eats with them. Did you catch the roof part? said Saul goes up on the roof that's the, the the master bedroom that's where people would have slept so if, if I were to go to your house this would be something akin to you walking up to me and say well you take the master bedroom I'm going to go on the, on the couch that is the equivalent so being on the roof is where it would have been less heat up there the heat would have plenty of place to escape and then the next morning as they're walking out Samuel stops Saul and he says Saul just let me talk to you for a moment send the servant let him go ahead I need to talk to you. I need to share some things that I may make known to you the word of God. I cannot imagine what was shared. This was Samuel explaining the power of the interaction he's had with God, explaining details and conversations and saying, this is what went on, and he's explaining these things. And so he's listening to this, and he's gathering this information, and he's... and. In his mind, he's thinking, Saul has to be thinking, how can I do this? I don't care what size prime rib you serve. I don't care how many people you call together. I don't care what kind of a fancy meeting. And no, even a pep talk. You just said that I'm going to be the king of Israel. Saul has to have this fear. Look with me at um, verse, uh, was it, um, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, when you, when you, there's a lot here that I can say. First of all, the flask of oil. What's going on with this? If you are anointed king of Israel, you are anointed not only as a sovereign, but as a spiritual leader. You would have been crowned with a crown, but then after that, you would have been pretty much immersed. Not just a little bit of oil on your head, not just a little bit on the crown of your head. You, they would have poured 
oil in expensive ointment and expensive spices that were to be mixed in and drenched you in this as to say you were completely covered with the presence and the power of God. It was symbolism. Very much symbolism. So this oil is poured all over him. And think about this. Think about when I say the word symbolism. Something that's symbolic comes from something that is substantive. It just does. Symbolism comes from a heartfelt measure of something. Today, at the end of the message, we have the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Table together. That is symbolism. But it comes from something that is very real. And I hope you take into your account in your mind of something. That's remarkable. The symbolism of the oil did not make him a brand new king. It was a symbol to tell somebody, this is who the new king is. He was to feel the presence of it and try to clean it off for days, recognizing it's a consistent presence of God, the oil sticking to the skin. And so, he, when he says here, um, in the verse 1, he says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? This is interesting to me. I read this, and I can't help but think, I mean, Samuel is asking him this question, but he's asking it to affirm it. Think about this. He says, Saul, has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince or to be the king of Israel? I would think a normal reaction, a normal question would be like, do you have any questions? Can you believe this is really happening? But he says it in an affirmative bent saying, has not the Lord appointed you? The reason I think that verse is in there and that conversation is in there because of the previous verse that said, I will make known to you the word of God. There's no doubt Samuel saw the look on Saul's face as he began to tell him, God personally sought you out. Personally went after you. Now, for those of you who know the story of Saul, you know what a mess up and a failure he's going to be He's, this, the man is going to fall spiritually and sadly did not start right here. This is a man who's humble. This is a man of integrity. This is a man who's, who's starting to grasp it. But here's what happens. As with a lot of people who fall in the realm of, of having everything, they lose everything in spite of having everything. They're continually chasing something. And this is going to be the case with poor Saul. And so, verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys you went to seek are found, but now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do with my son? So here's what's going to happen. There are going to be three interactions. This is the first one. Samuel has told Saul there's going to be three things that are going to happen to you, and they're all going to happen. Number one, this first interaction teaches you and I a lesson. Here it is. This interaction shows that God can solve Saul's problems, and he can solve our problems. Did you notice the father is no longer looking for the donkeys? He's concerned about his son. I think that would be the case with most of you. You would look around and think, well, if you have somebody calls you and says, you know, um, I can't imagine, you know, you you get a call that says, so-and-so's in an accident. Your first reaction is going to be what? How are you? Nothing to do with the vehicle. And so this father's nothing, nothing different. Forget about the donkeys. Look at that. If there's that kind of love that God can shower a father and a son, imagine the love that God has for you and I. That he looks at you and he says, I could care less about the promotion that you want. I could care less about this particular thing that you want. Why? Because I'm worried about you. 
every time I officiate a wedding, I generally try to talk to somebody about what it means to be secure in your relationship. You ask a man and a woman about security in a marriage, and you're going to get two different answers. Men are hardwired to do this. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get that paycheck. I'm going to earn. I'm going to succeed at a career. I'm going to do all these things based on a performance to say, this is what I'm going to do to provide security. The woman is saying, the security I want is time and love and presence. And it's, it's interesting. You hear these things all the time. Sarah, I guarantee you when you're looking at Carrie, there wasn't a concern of where's my security of a paycheck. Your security was bent on, I want the fellowship of my husband and while, you're, while you're in that hospital bed. And so here you begin to see a father-son having that interaction. God has it with us in a, in a, in a much bigger sense. See, one of Saul's greatest failures as a leader was his inability to take his hand off situations and let God rule. And whenever I go to speak, I'm a nervous wreck. You know, like, I'm just, I'm in a zone. If I look like I'm staring through you, I don't mean to. It's just I get nervous every time I get up here. I can tell you the day I stop getting nervous, I don't need to get up here. Because there's not a dependency on the power of God. There's not a dependency on his word. And I'm taking it lightly. And I can get up here in my own strength. It's a, and, and so you pray, you agonize. And I have a hard time studying. I just do. I I, I, I I, so what I do is I do the opposite of study. I worry all week long, you know, like, oh, what am I going to say? And so, you know, you sit there and think, what am, now why can I grasp this? Why can't I grasp certain things? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gives me a certain dependency to say, stand with my word and it will not go void. You know, Bob, when you and I have lunch, you're always talking about the, you know, the, the power of Scripture. What's God doing in your life? What's God teaching in your life? The reality is, you and I have the ability at any time to open the power of God's Word and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to move in you. And through you, through His Word, at any given day. Now, think about it. Men especially, we are hardwired again in this area. Headstrong, it can be going to ladies too in this. I'm going to fix it myself. Well intended. I'm going to, God has given me enough ability. I can do this. I can fix this. I'm going to fix it. And we become less dependent on the power and the word of God. And so we have to watch ourselves. To be careful. Saul was a control freak. Have you ever worked for a control freak? Been around a control freak? I mean, you're, you're, you're engaged with somebody that's just like, not engaged, like marital engagement, but I mean engagement of like of like your life, and you're like, man, this person just wants to control everything. There's a certain sense that they just want to they just want to control, control, control. And I'll tell you, churches are the most popular magnets for that kind of behavior, if left unattended. When they can't control you at work, when they cannot control you at school, they're going to run to the steeple and control that place. And how it usually comes in is in the area of writing a check. I'm big enough to do this. I'm big enough to do that. Folks, the blessing of our church, we have a lot. We don't have that here. You would look like a 10,000-pound pink elephant if you barge in here trying to control things. It wouldn't jive with the nature and and the personality of this church. And the reason being is this. You will take every precaution and every measure to make sure no one walks in here with an agenda other than God's word. Meaning... 
Don't be that guy that says do this or do that or do the, you know, be the person that directs people to the word of God. There's a lot of answers I cannot give you. And the beauty is, as a pastor, I can look at you if you say, well, what does this mean? Well, how can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? The moment I begin to give verbiage outside of the word of God, I'm trying to control you. No pastor on this earth has any authority over you other than to describe and point you to the Word of God. That is the role of a pastor. And so if you ask questions, I hope you're comfortable enough from when I look at you and say, I don't know, but let's look at the Word. Let's work it and let's walk through and see what it means. So as much as we think of the control freak and we all have our imagery going on, I'm going to tell you that I am chief of a control freak of another nature, of the good side over not wanting to empower or delegate to you certain responsibilities. Why? I began looking at our calendar thinking, we've been cooking more casseroles than, you know, lubies or something. I don't know. Remember that place? I mean, like, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, like, wait. <laughs> I've been out of business for years. Anyway, I'm, I'm thinking, like, we, we keep burning up your ovens. Can you cook for this? 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 And all of a sudden, I back away, and I'm like, I don't want to bother you. You guys walk in, I'm thinking, man, I don't want to wear you out and ask you to do this or do this or do this. So here's what happens. Okay, chief center now. I am a control freak from an angle of goodness. I'm trying to do good and not control you. I'm trying to be the person that says, I want to give you the best experience you've ever had in church. But I'm missing it if I don't involve you in this church. If this isn't a place for you to walk in and feel needed, we've not done a good job as a church. When we were um, clearing our property, where we're going to be building hopefully very soon, we had, I mean, the summer was pushing weeds out there. We went out there and mowed with tractors, and we had tractors everywhere. And the thrill that I got over watching all these people out there um, I mean, do it everything from, I mean, Karen, you're out there lighting fires. I think you would burn down half of everything you saw, if you like. She loves fires. And I'm watching people. Fire department came twice. Thank you, Karen. Really appreciate that. And I remember watching people on little mowers, people on big mowers, people with chainsaws. And there I see, you know, I look over and there's Paul Hawks, mid-80s. This man out there working. I mean, this guy has just got that, you know, farm strength. You know what I'm talking about? The guy, it's only on a farm. They just, this guy is strong as an ox. With his tractor, the tractor just going over the trailer, I forgot, some, whatever, not mechanical, some belt or whatever, something broke on there, you know, and he, it couldn't move. And I remember thinking, it's five o'clock, you know, it's going to start getting dark soon, mosquitoes are starting to hit, six o'clock, seven, and I walk up and he's just as positive as anything. And he said, Jake, man, I just, I love this. I, you know, it was deep voice. Paul speaks with a deep southern voice. He says, I just, it just brings me more joy. And I think, Bob, you were out there trying to help him out. And you got it running. You got it out. We're about to put that sucker on Craigslist after about 8 o'clock. But, but you know, I, it was remarkable. I remember thinking, thank you, Lord, that we have a church where a man in his mid-80s can crawl up on a tractor again and say, this is my place, and I'm going to do what my role is. And that's an amazing thing. Keep walking through this. Verse 3. So that was the first lesson, the interaction he's going to have. Then, verse 3, you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three goats, another one carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. 
Wow, this, so what is the point here? The second interaction tells us this, that God is going to show us that he's going to supply Saul's needs. He's going to supply your needs. The reality is God supplies our needs much more than we can supply them out of our own skill set. I think of how many times I have worried over something, I have stressed over something, I have worked for something far more than I've ever prayed for something and I've ever waited on something. You know, I mean, um, poor, I know, Pat, we bug you every day. Did you hear anything with the county? Is the permit here yet? What are we going to do? And, and it's impatience. The reality is there are a bunch of pastors in South Sudan sitting under a tree in 110 degree heat who aren't complaining about anything other than, you know, than... Well, yeah, the bullets were bad last month, or, you know, uh, had a cow die, and here we are. I'm worked up over, I got three fans going in here, trying to get us out to a place. Folks, if I'm not careful, I'm going to catch myself in a sinful condition. Saul did not become the Saul at the end overnight. It happened over ungrateful attitudes, and less of a leniency and dependency on who God is. It happened over, pride doesn't do that. I've never met a prideful person who other, maybe somebody won the lottery and thought they they made it in life. Uh, Somebody just builds pride. Pride usually begins from insecurity. It does. Oftentimes, the the, the one with the biggest roar in, in the room, the one with the biggest gruff is often the most insecure person in a room. But for the most part, they don't know it. They don't. The reality is God is going to meet your needs. There's, we keep reading. There's another interaction. This interaction looks really interesting. As a matter of fact, verse 5. After you shall come to Gilbeth Elohim, there is a garrison of the Philistines. That's a military unit of garrison of the Philistines. Saul's going to put a whipping on those guys, though, later. And there, as soon as you come up to the city, you will meet a group of prophets. Coming down from, I can't help but laugh, coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lair before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. If I saw that group coming, I might turn and run. I don't know. You know, like, uh, but, but yet yeah, they're coming down the mountain. Here is Saul, who's never really been a man of religious activity. And what does he do? Runs into them and starts preaching with them, talking about God with them discussing things and, and praising the Lord. This is a really odd interaction. See, this third interaction shows me this. It shows that God will give Saul the power needed for what he has got, God has called him to do. God will do that. All the time, I talk to people who are further along in life, and they'll say, I have no idea how I passed that exam, how I passed that test, how I made it through this. If you put a seminary exam in front of me, I'm going to flunk that thing. I know it. I don't know how other than the power God gave me that. I looked at that, I'm like, I, I look back, I'm like, well, I'd have to study and I'd have to study. God has an amazing ability to affirm what you're going to do and equip you. I've met with students who were deathly afraid to ever step in the next realm of like, no, I'm lucky to be at EMT. There's no way I'm going to go to paramedic school. I just can't face it. And yet you watch them five years later as a paramedic. And think because God, when he calls upon your life to do something, he's going to equip you. And that's what's happening here. So, verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Stop right here. That verse is worth coming today. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. What does that mean in layman's terms? Do what you do. 
do what you do best. The great, I have a joy of coming up here during the week and I get to walk in and I see our, our ladies in there volunteering in the office and I inevitably walk in and Art, you and Dan are running around installing, you're running cable out there so we can get a speaker or, or I look out in my yard and I see Mike Miller out there building this thing and Tyler Jacobs putting lights and people trying to fix things and I watch, you know, I'm watching Zach Purcell out here just making sure everything's perfect and in order. And I watch this and I notice something. They're doing what their hands are meant to do. They're doing what they're meant to do. God has designed you specifically to be you. You. And so don't try to do what others do and emulate or mimic or parrot what you see around us. Be who you are. And thank you, Lord, he gave us a church like we are. I never dreamt I could have a church as an extension of my living room. That you could literally walk out of one room into another and never put a look on, a feel on, an impression on of anything other than you. Do what your hand finds to do. And whatever we do, help me. Help the good, kind, gentle, control freaks who are trying to keep you at at peace and make sure you have a church that you love, walk up to us and say, I want to do something. You know, when Tyler, when you said, I want to train some people in CPR, I like to do that. That's a huge thing for us. That's something that whenever you walk up to, to, with an idea, God is going to equip you. So it's a, real, it's, it's a, a, it's a powerful verse to me. Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to offer you burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass this day. Now, um, God gave him another heart. What does that mean? This is Old Testament. Re- spiritual regeneration is only possible through the Holy Spirit. Moving. This change of heart has nothing to do with all of a sudden his, light, his heart coming to, coming to a Christ that has not entered this world. It's not coming to the Lord saying immediately, like, I am, I am now I am saved of that knowledge. It is a change of attitude. It is a change of priorities. It is a change of direction. So when you read this, read into what it means. And so he simply says, I, God gave him another change of heart. Here's what's interesting. This is why I'm excited about, in a minute, taking this Lord's table. You and I have higher privilege than the king of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Think about this. Think about the symbolism of that oil on his head. Pouring the oil all over. The symbolism of God's presence and anointing. What When we drink Welch's grape juice, there is nothing at all in that juice that is of any means that can do anything to change you. It's symbolism that says this, of the act of what God has done to change you. And the Holy Spirit that dwells in us is is acting differently than it did then. The Holy Spirit then would come and go. God would implant the Holy Spirit 
They called it his Holy Spirit. He said, I'll implant my Holy Spirit in your life to do certain things. He would even do this. God would put the Holy Spirit into the lives of non-believers to accomplish certain things. And so this is what's going on. And this is why when the Holy Spirit departed from Saul, years later you see David yell this out. He says this in, in Psalm 51 verse 11. He reads and he says this, Cast me not away from your Holy Spirit. and take, Cast me away from, not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is why David is saying this because he has seen firsthand what it's like for the Holy Spirit to just simply depart from someone. You and I have something different. You and I have the power as a believer in Jesus Christ of the promise and the protection of the Holy Spirit. And it cannot leave you. You can grieve it, but you cannot depart from it. Nothing can take away the promise and the security and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not even you. Oftentimes, I'll look at someone. I'm sure, Mona, if somebody came up to you and said, Mona, you're a godly person. Or somebody walked up and said, Joe, you're a godly person. You would look at them and think, you just don't know me well enough. Wouldn't you? In your humility, you probably say that. People say that, uh, Jake, uh, well, you know, godly uh, teaching. I'm thinking, <sighs> what do we do? We who look in the spiritual mirror attack ourselves and we are the greatest antagonists to ourselves than anyone else. We continually bring ourselves down by reminding ourselves of the failure and the inadequacies and the lack of dependency on God. And so therefore we walk away with a prognosis that I'm, I'm saved, I'm a believer, but I'm not the godly person I want. I'm going to give you some, I think this is important for you to hear. Sometimes when a person walks up to you and says, you are the godliest person, you are somebody who is godly, they may by the power of God, know you better than you know you. Because God does something to the power of the Holy Spirit by giving people the right to still affirm and the right to call out great qualities and to someone to come alongside and say, this is something that I think you need to know. But meanwhile, the battle within is still the person dragging us down saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't know who I am. You don't know the inadequacies. You don't know the failures. You don't know the times I've been tempted and I just simply gave up. But in you, in spite of ourselves, is the promise of the Holy Spirit that will not leave you. It can't. He cannot depart from you. Because it's a, it's a promise made. And it's a promise that's going to be kept. And so... Sometimes we don't feel like the godliest person. Sometimes we feel like we've messed up. Sometimes we feel like there's no way out. The Holy Spirit has not felt that way. Somebody has failed to tell the Holy Spirit of the power of you. Someone has failed to convince the Holy Spirit of your strength versus his. Because he knows none other than his. John 14 Verse 16 and 17 speak to us this way. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you 
in will be in you. What a promise we have. And so now with the Lord's table, and we go ahead and, and start passing those elements out, this, these elements of the Lord's table, I hope you don't lose in the area of the symbolism. It's a gluten-free cracker, and it welches grape juice. And, I, and you can go ahead and start passing those out, please. And uh, these, these elements are something that are passed out by men who are not godlier than you as a believer. You are not being led to this in it by anybody godlier than you. We are called together as brothers and sisters in Christ to celebrate a supper. A supper that was had when Jesus said, I want one more meal with the people most important to me. I want one more meal where we all come together and we celebrate. And I suppose if you were to ask someone in death row, and by the way, just go ahead and take one of each, so you got the cracker and the juice, and as you, as you would celebrate this meal that you'd want in your life one more time, I can guarantee you it probably wasn't the taste of it. It was the experience of it. If you think back to the most memorable meals you ever shared in your life, it was people that you loved the most. This is in remembrance of that meal. Of Jesus about to be taken to a cross and about to be abused and about to be tortured. And he called together his closest friends on this earth, his chosen family. And he said this, I want to celebrate with you. And so this is not just done in memory. If we're not careful, we make the Lord's communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we make it uh, almost like a funeral dirge. Folks, this is the greatest victory we could ever have. That you and I are celebrating an appointment that Christ had on a cross that he willingly walked to. But we're also celebrating the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit in this. There is nothing anyone, even you, can do to remove you from the power of the Holy Spirit. The bread has been given over to you as a semblance for the breaking of his body. What was done on a cross. The blood, imagine the, the oil falling over the face. And the blood is the blood that has covered you and I, all of us, that makes us be able to sit here and say, God, we are forgiven. There is no more judgment on a believer coming your way for your sins. It's over. Even the ones for tomorrow. The judgment is over. So every six weeks, we here at Creekside take the Lord's Supper. And we take it together as a family. Now, if you ever pass the tray and you ever say you don't want to take it, no one will judge you because, number one, this is a, this is a believer's Lord's table. That's what this is. This is for the belie- believers in Christ. But I would also say this. If you've ever at a place where you just don't feel like there's closure in a way, forgiveness in a way, certain things. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you're right. I'm just saying like the Lord convicts you. You don't have to take it. Or maybe when you do to take it, in just a second, we're going to, as soon as I get done, I'm just going to ask for 30 seconds of quiet and silence and you just catch up with God. And maybe before you take those elements, you say, Lord, this is a person I need to speak to. This is an area that, Lord, I need to address with you. Whatever you do, make it personal. This is your table with him. We just get to do it together. Let's go ahead and pray. and Just take those moments in silence and, and pray.
Lord, thank you for the your presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. That and we look to others who kind of de- who depend on everything else. Father, may we be reminded that there is no one else like you. Go ahead and take those elements now. Lord, thank you for thank you for family. Thank you, Father, that a membership at a church does not matter in a moment like this. Father, thank you that having a perfect life does not matter in a moment like this. What matters, Lord, is you've called us to come together in remembrance of you. And Lord, we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. One more set of verses that I have for you, the promise we have in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, read this. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I cannot imagine what Saul heard from Samuel when he said, I'm going to share with you from God and said to Saul, do you feel like the king now or what? Nothing compares to those two verses. You and I have been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit and there's nothing you and I can do to break it. I close with this, that if you, there's always two groups of people, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who would say, I profess to believe in the Lord, and, and Lord, teach me in your word, teach me in your ways what you'd have me learn. And for those of you who are not a believer, our invitation is not a walk-forward invitation, it's an invitation to meet with your friend who brought you, and to ask those questions at lunch. Or if you came by yourself, simply come to us and ask. And the question of being, uh, you may have, of how, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? It's the most critical decision you will ever make in your life. And without the powerful redemption of the Holy Spirit moving in you, without, without the power of the blood of Christ in your life, what the, how's your plan holding up? There's no one who's going to stand by you like Christ. No one who will never forsake you like the Holy Spirit. And never anyone who will welcome you home like our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you as I look around the room and I see different faces and I see new faces. Um, see Jake Purcell down from um, med school. I see Mitchell and Cambry. Father, heading off to Missouri. And you can't help but think, Lord, we are never to grow roots of our own here other than growing a praise and worship towards you. Father, no matter where you have us move, may you have us move people to you. That for some people, walking in this door means getting ready to leave and getting ready to go and to follow you. God, may we be obedient, whatever you called us, whether it's in a new building, whether it's here, whether it's under an oak tree like our brothers in South Sudan. Father, may we make you the focal point of our life. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.